0: Chrétien introduces a number of really important central elements that we still associate with Arthur. For one, he brings in the character of Lancelot. He also introduces Camelot. So the first known mention of Camelot is in one of Chrétien's stories, where he says that, quote, On a certain ascension day, King Arthur was in the region near Carleon and held his court at Camelot splendidly and luxuriantly, as befitted a king. So Chrétien does not say that his main court or palace or capital was at Camelot. It's just a place that he mentions where he held court on one particular day. And we don't know where he got that name from. It's possible that he made it up. The word Cam is apparently an old Celtic word with royal connotations and places associated with rulers often had Cam in them. And then lot in French just can mean a place so maybe it just means royal place, king's place, and also Lot happened to rhyme with the previous line. But regardless, he is the first known writer to refer to Camelot. He also introduces Morgan Le Fay. So there are other stories that deal with this sorceress who is a half-sister of Arthur, who is sometimes his antagonist and who also controls Avalon. So remember, Avalon was mentioned back in Geoffrey of Monmouth's story as the magical island where Arthur ultimately is brought as he is dying. Did he make up Morgan Le Fay? Could it have been taken from earlier Welsh mythology and folklore? We don't know. He also is the first to connect the Holy Grail with Arthur. So this becomes probably the most important and influential new element of the Arthur mythology. So one of Chrétien's poems tells the story of a knight called Percival, and Percival was a young man who had been raised in the woods in extreme isolation away from civilization. But as he comes of age, he decides he wants to be a knight. But in order to become a knight of the round table, he has to prove himself. And he's sort of immature. He's belligerent, brutish, and he has to show that he can act in a mature way, as worthy, as befitting a knight. So he goes out on adventures, and at one point he decides to visit his mother back in the forest. So on the way to visiting his mother, he encounters a king, a fisher king, who is somehow cursed. He's permanently wounded on one leg, and his kingdom is in a state of poverty and stagnation. So he's invited to stay at the castle of the Fisher King, and while he's there, the courtiers carry on a procession with various ritual objects, including an elaborately decorated grail, which basically just means a sort of wide chalice, the sort of thing you'd often see in medieval Europe. And Percival watches this strange procession with this ornamented grail but he stays silent. He considers it polite not to talk too much, so he says nothing. He leaves the castle, and after leaving, he's accosted by a strange woman in the woods who scolds him, saying that he should have asked about the grail. And if he had asked what it was and whom it served, that would have healed the wounded king, and hence also the kingdom. But because he failed to do that, The kingdom continues to suffer, and he also learns that his mother has died. He hasn't made it back in time before his mother dies. After this, the story breaks off unfinished. And it seems that later writers, decades later, wrote various endings continuing the story. But this original version breaks off. So this encounter with this grail, it's strongly hinted that the grail is the holy grail. In other words, a grail that was used to hold Christ's blood, and that according to some folklore was then brought to Britain. So, this encounter with the Holy Grail then explodes into a major consuming theme of the entire Arthur mythology. And in many later stories, knights are sent off or set out on grail quests to seek this grail. <sighs> right, right, right. Jesus. Oh. All right, okay. In one of those later continuations of the Percival story, Percival and another knight, Gawain, try to go back and retrace these steps to attain the grail again. And they come to a castle, which is sometimes called the White Castle or the Grail Castle. And there by the grail castle, they find a broken sword set into a stone. And an inscription says, that this broken sword can only be mended by the same man who heals the fisher king. So there's some sort of connection here between the king, the grail, and the broken sword. And Gawain tries and fails to repair this sword, but Percival succeeds. He's able to put the sword back together, but it still has a small hairline crack. And as some have pointed out, the sword seems to represent the broken psyche the flawed mind and spirit of Percival, which he cannot entirely heal and which by implication means that he can't really attain the grail. Although he's made progress, he will still not reach it. So the main emphases of Chrétien de Troyes' work are the increasing psychological complexity, the sort of strengths and weaknesses, the flaws of these different knights, their characters, their naivety or lust or spite, And this world of the round table has to be somehow managed by the king. The king is this sort of guiding spirit, but he also is flawed and limited himself. And the round table represents a sort of egalitarian ideal, that the king and all of his knights, rather than being seated at a long table, like you'd usually see at a medieval hall, with the king at the head and the more important vassals seated up closer to the right hand of the king, Instead, they're somehow all equal and all facing one another. And at this time, in the mid and late 1100s, there were growing stronger monarchies arising in Europe, such as the Capet dynasty in France and the Plantagenets, like I mentioned, in England. And these monarchs are trying to centralize power more and more around themselves. But in doing so, they have to negotiate carefully between noble and royal power and the sort of competing authorities and prerogatives of the nobility and the crown. And this needs a lot of careful massaging. And some kings, of course, will fail, such as King John, who is basically captured by his own barons and forced to sign the Magna Carta, etc. And at this time, there is more and more frequent calling of councils and parliaments in which various nobles, whoever is qualified and high status enough, is able to come together in a council. And the monarchs can solicit the support of the noble class or the nobles can reject it and refuse to participate in a war or pay a tax. This practice of calling together councils and parliaments, you can see as a kind of, at least a a gesture of respect for noble prerogatives and an effort to, and in this way, Camelot, this increasingly sort of glorious legendary court and the round table maybe represent a sort of reconciliation, an imaginary balancing of the central role of the king and the dignity of the different nobles and a sort of attempt at reconciling the principles of equality and hierarchy. That the nobles are equals, they are peers of one another and even of the monarch. They are all members of the second estate but they still respect the ultimate authority of the king. So in all of these ways, you can see Camelot as becoming a kind of high medieval utopia cast back into this mythical past. And various other writers connected to varying degrees with the court of Henry II, this Plantagenet king of England who is also spending most of his time in France as Duke of Normandy. These different writers in the orbit of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine continue elaborating the Arthur mythology as, a, as kind of art and propaganda at once. Robert de Boron, a French poet, wrote a poem around the year 1200 called Merlin, focusing on the sorcerer, the way he had sort of shaped and created the Arthurian world. And in this poem, Merlin, we see the first appearance of the sword in an anvil, as an explanation for Arthur's kingship. And this later changes into the sword and the stone. So this is the image probably most of us know and have heard of, that Arthur does not simply inherit his throne. He proves that he's the king by pulling a sword that is magically stuck in a stone. And by this time, Arthur, as a symbol of kind of otherworldly sacral kingship and of an ideal leader of knights, really comes into vogue. And the whole world of Camelot takes on this new significance as a model, a model of ideal life. And a lot of the Arthurian literature from the late 1100s, early 1200s, falls broadly into the genre of courtly literature, which was so-called because it developed around the court of Henry II and Eleanor, and, and also even earlier than that, Eleanor and Louis. And courtly literature celebrates courtly love. A lot of courtly literature was written by and for women. Women took up this role as judges and arbiters of good courtly ethics. They judged tournaments and other chivalric contests. And at least some women at this court, it seems, wrote literature, including Arthur romances, these Arthurian texts tend to really emphasize romantic love, passion and affairs of Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot, also Tristan and Isolde. And there's a great emphasis in the whole mythology of courtly love. There's a great emphasis on illicit love and love outside of marriage, which is seen as sort of more pure and more real than marital love. So certainly at least one of these authors definitely included Marie de France, who flourished between about 1160 and 1215. She wrote in French with a lot of Anglo-Norman influence and elements. We don't know where she was from or where she wrote. She might have been in France or England. She wrote verse versions of Aesop's Fables, so from the ancient Greek. And she also wrote 12 lays or narrative poems. She said she took the stories for these lays from Breton minstrels. These lays include two that deal in some way with King Arthur and his court. One of them is on Tristan and Isolde, and Tristan has now, of course, been thoroughly integrated into Camelot. And there may possibly have been other participation or contribution by other women, because a lot of this courtly literature was also anonymous. The authors are not known for sure, but most likely they included some women. By the 1200s, you can see the King Arthur cycle now is not only a mythic backstory to provide a sort of ideal royal state, but also to underpin courtly ideals of heroism, protection of the innocent, including women and children and the clergy, devotion and sacrifice for love of a lady, and also chastity. If you're not in love with any particular woman, you should be chaste, such as in the case of Galahad, a new figure at the round table that I'll talk about later. And so the golden age of Arthurian literature in the 11 and 1200s, it's concerned with new ideals of masculinity and can be seen as instances of dear men, what is preventing you from looking like this? So a lot of these stories that come up after Chrétien de Troyes are loosely related and seem to follow continuing themes and storylines. And they've been grouped together into a group called the Vulgate Cycle or also sometimes the Lancelot-Grail cycle. And the Vulgate cycle was composed in the early 1200s. They're all anonymous, but the project may have been started. Some scholars think it was started and overseen by Eleanor of Aquitaine, the queen and wife of Henry II. And the Vulgate cycle tells several important news stories. It tells about various quests by Arthur and Sir Gawain, aided by Merlin, the sorcerer. It tells for the first time of the Lady of the Lake as a good sorceress you might see as a kind of positive counterpart to Morgan Le Fay. The Lady of the Lake is said to have raised Lancelot. So whereas Arthur is raised by the sorcerer Merlin, Lancelot, or Lancelot of the Lake, is raised by this sort of spirit goddess figure, the Lady of the Lake. And in general, the Vulgate cycle tends to work in more female characters. It also tells of the affair in more detail between Lancelot and Guinevere. And this is what led to the breakup and downfall of Camelot. So other knights were envious and resentful towards Lancelot because he was exceptionally talented and accomplished. He was closest, he was a favorite of the king. And so other knights who are envious of Lancelot perceive and leap upon this love affair between Lancelot and Queen Guinevere and use it to create a rift and hence this causes the round table to fall into fighting and dissension and this eventually leads one way or another to the end of Arthur's kingdom. The Vulgate cycle also elaborates tremendously on the quest for the Holy Grail and it provides a backstory for what the Holy Grail is doing in Britain. It supposedly was brought to Britain by Joseph of Arimathea, a follower of Jesus Christ who fled to Britain in ancient times. And according to the Vulgate cycle, the quest for the Grail was undertaken by Percival, the same one that we saw earlier in Chrétien de Troyes' writings. But Percival fails And he ends up lost in the forest along with another knight, Sir Bors. And the grail instead is achieved by a new hero who is discussed for the first time in this cycle, and that is Galahad. So Galahad is an illegitimate son of Lancelot. Galahad is the most pure and virtuous and chaste of all the knights. He is also illegitimate, which you might take as a mark against him, of course. But it's something he incidentally has in common with King Arthur who was the offspring of an illicit affair between Uther Pendragon and the Duchess of Cornwall. So he perhaps is somehow an outcast hero, kind of like Arthur. He is raised in a nunnery, not by a sorcerer or sorceress, but in a Christian convent. So naturally, he's the most honorable young man. He engages his father Lancelot in combat and defeats him and hence is knighted and becomes a member of the Knights of the Round Table. When he comes to Camelot, he is invited to take a seat called the Siege Perilous a seat that has been kept empty because it can only be taken by the knight who will achieve the Holy Grail and anyone else who sits there will be struck down. So he takes his seat and survives and hence the other knights come to believe that he is the knight who will achieve the Holy Grail. He is then taken out by Arthur to a sword set in a stone in a river. So again, this repeating theme of sword stuck in stone. This one is inscribed... For the best knight in the world and he successfully pulls it out so he wins the complete confidence and support of arthur and his knights shortly after this arthur and the round table have a vision of the holy grail it appears to them in the middle of the table they all witness it and all the knights then set out in different ways to seek and quest for the grail But Galahad naturally is the fastest and takes the initiative because he's confident that he will achieve the mission. At this point, the round table breaks up, falls apart. Many of the questing knights die or disappear out there in unknown lands. Galahad goes out and fights and defeats many enemies and eventually finds and rescues Percival, who was lost out there in the hinterlands. Percival's sister then leads them to the ship of Solomon, a sort of magical boat that takes them to an island, and on that island they find King David's sword. So swords, of course, again and again are symbols of authority, of the right to rule, and they now have found this sword connected to God's own favorite, King David. The rulers of this island then allow Galahad to enter into a closed sacred room where he sees the Holy Grail. He takes the Holy Grail and delivers it to another mystical island called Saras. Then on his way returning home, he encounters Joseph of Arimathea. And in his meeting with Joseph of Arimathea, he experiences some sort of powerful religious ecstasy and ascends to heaven. And this serves as kind of the climax of the Vulgate cycle. But of course, the story doesn't end there. And there are further writings about Arthur and the round table in the 1230s in what's called the post-Vulgate cycle. So another collection of stories, also anonymous, which introduce more new story elements. For one thing, the post-Vulgate cycle is the first to say that the Lady of the Lake, this goddess figure who raised Lancelot, also gives authority to Arthur in the form of Excalibur. So Excalibur is now seen for the first time as a sword coming from the lake. And the Lady of the Lake continues to grow and become more complex in more stories, particularly in French and Italian poems about Arthur. She becomes a big focus. And the Lady of the Lake is seen as more and more morally ambiguous, sometimes engages in evil. So she has good and evil sides. And in some of these stories, she's ultimately burned at the stake as an evil sorceress. But then later versions take more of those evil traits and actions away from the Lady of the Lake and reassign them to Morgan Le Fay. So you go back to a sort of clear mirror dichotomy between the good sorceress and the bad. So there are continuing elaborations, but still overall, you can see the collection of stories starting to take more of an overall shape with a full detailed beginning, middle and end. And the Galahad story and his achievement of the grail serves more and more as the culmination of the entire mythic cycle. The matter of Britain has a more sophisticated ending as well. So after Galahad achieves the grail, there's the question of what then happens to Camelot. And the affair story between Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot, that love triangle, serves as a sort of convenient impetus to bring on the downfall. And these tragic flaws of lust, jealousy, naivety, blindness, all of these provide sort of flies in the ointment, undermining this perfect utopian world, which must ultimately fall And in a lot of ways, by the end of the Vulgate cycle, you have this sort of picture of Arthur, not just Arthur himself, but Arthur's whole world that is patterned on Greek tragedy and the theme of hubris, the idea that every great hero has a tragic flaw that will bring him down. But in the Arthur cycle, it's applied not just to the hero himself, but to a whole society, And it's a sort of, you might say, perfectly medieval commentary on a social, an organic social order and its life cycle. Also in the 12 and 1300s, the Arthur cycle comes to be ritualized and dramatized and receives a sort of royal imprimatur as a framework for royal mythology. So starting in the 1200s, there are incidents of tournaments, knightly tournaments, which were called round tables in reference to Arthur's Knights. The first known one was in the year 1223 on the island of Cyprus, sponsored by the crusader ruler of Cyprus in the Mediterranean. But shortly after that, they also begin to appear in England and they start to become a staple of English royal pageantry. And in the year 1344, King Edward III held a round table tournament. And Edward III was a very long-reigning and fairly successful monarch. But he had started off as king when he was only 15 years old, when his father, Edward II, had been overthrown by the nobility of the realm because he was a very dysfunctional ruler. He also was very influenced by his male lovers. And he'd been overthrown and probably killed by the leading nobles who then stuck the young Edward III on the throne. So Edward III had this cloud hanging over him of doubt about his legitimacy and about his power and authority as against these nobles. And he apparently used this round table as a way of trying to deal with this problem. And he held the tournament at Windsor. And at the end, he made a grand announcement that he was creating a new order of knighthood patterned on Arthur and Camelot. And in this way, he was maybe using this symbolism that I've been talking about of the round table to again try to kind of massage and negotiate his relationship with the nobles and give them some prestige and some honor, but centered around the crown. So it was a way of maybe managing the political situation. And he built an enormous round fortress tower in Windsor Castle in order to house a tremendous round table. It happens that four years later, when this order, this knightly order was created, it was instead called the Order of the Garter. It drew on a completely different story and the Arthur Association was dropped and this round tower at Windsor has not survived. It apparently was abandoned or demolished at some point. It's not clear why, but this suggests that maybe this project of using the Arthur legend propagandistically and politically didn't work. There was some sort of controversy about it. There was some problem and it was eventually abandoned and did not come back. And you can see 1348 as a way, as a beginning of a shift, where Arthur moves away from the mythology and pageantry of royalty and royal courts, and instead more and more becomes a theme in folklore and literature again. And around this same time, or a few years later, the first Arthurian romance in English was composed But the author was not a courtier in any way connected to the crown. This romance is called Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it's anonymous. We don't know who the author was. This person who composed it is customarily called the Pearl Poet because he or she also wrote another lyrical poem called Pearl. But it was written in the mid or late 1300s in Middle English, not in Norman French, and it was written with old-style alliteration, which was a sort of traditional Celtic form, rather than in end rhyme, which is the French style. It drew clearly on the French and Norman romances of Arthur and his court, as well as probably Welsh and Irish folk stories and folk songs. We don't know where it was written for certain, but it's clear from the dialect of Middle English and from various place names that it refers to, it's clear that the author was in the West Midlands, roughly in the kind of Shropshire, maybe Gloucestershire area of West Central England. And the author was probably a cleric, uh, you know, maybe a monk in one of the monasteries in that area. But again, we just call this individual the Pearl Poet. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, I would certainly argue, is the best constructed piece of Arthurian literature. It distills certain themes of the Arthur mythology in a very nuanced way. It captures this central moral ambiguity. So I'm going to tell the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight As I mentioned before, there is a movie that should at some point be coming out that dramatizes this story. If you don't want a spoiler of this (laughs) 600-year-old Arthurian romance, the plot and the ending to be given away, I would skip forward now about five and a half minutes to the 33-minute mark. So Sir Gawain and the Green Knight begins at a Christmas court being held at Arthur's palace at Camelot. And a mysterious green knight, an enormous large warrior, whose skin is green and who rides on a green horse, appears and rides into this Christmas court and asks to confront Arthur. And he issues a challenge for any knight of the round table to take a free swing at him with any weapon as hard as they want, as long as in return one year later this green knight can return the blow now this may seem like a ridiculous silly bet but it really put the knights in a difficult position because if they are supposed to be the strongest most formidable warriors in the realm they ought to be able to accept this challenge in which they get the chance at the first blow but they hesitate they're afraid this guy is strange he may be magical he's extremely large and powerful So they hold back, but Gawain volunteers. Gawain is Arthur's nephew. He is young. He is new to the round table and he has something to prove. He has to demonstrate that he has the right to sit there at the round table and isn't just, you might say, a legacy hire. So Gawain, although he is very afraid, he accepts the challenge and he is allowed to take a free swing at the Green Knight and he swings an axe at the Knight's neck, hoping to kill him with one blow. And he decapitates the Knight, but the Knight does not die. The decapitated body picks up the head in its hand and the head speaks to them and says, now you have to fulfill your end of the bargain. In one year, next Christmas, you Gawain have to meet me at the Green Chapel, at which point I am free to take a swing at you. So Gawain has a very tense and nervous year, you might imagine. But the following autumn, he knows that he has to face his duty. He sets out alone with his weapons and his armor to travel to this green chapel. Along the journey, he takes shelter at the home of a noble called Sir Bertilac, And Bertilac agrees to give him lodging in his castle if Gawain will hand over to Bertilac any gifts that he might receive during the days when he's staying there. This seems like a fair enough bargain, so he agrees to it. Now during his stay at Bertilak's castle, I won't get into all the gory details, and some of them are a bit gory, but repeatedly Bertilak's wife comes to him at night and kisses him and tries to seduce him. But Gawain manages to resist enough not to have sex with Bertilak's wife. But each day he has to kiss Bertilak, (laughs) showing that he's handing over whatever gifts he's gotten during the course of his stay. On the final night before Gawain has to set out to this green chapel for his final confrontation, the lady comes to him and insists on giving him a magical green sash, which she tells him he can wear under his armor and which will magically protect him from any blow. So Gawain sees that this may be a key to protecting himself against the green knight, but he also knows that if he doesn't hand it over to Sir Bertilac, he's breaking his oath that he gave to his host. So he weighs his options and he decides to put on the green sash under his armor and basically sneak off with it without telling Bertilac. And he goes into the forest and meets with the Green Knight in this sort of glade, which they call the Green Chapel. The Green Knight takes a swing at his neck, ready to decapitate him. But the axe is halted apparently by the power of the sash. So it protects him. And at that point, the Green Knight transforms and reveals that he is, in fact, Sir Bertilac, and that he has been put into this magical disguise by the powers of Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's wicked opponent. And Gawain is ashamed he feels that he gained this success by trickery and by oath-breaking but bertalak insists that he go home and that he has fulfilled his end of the bargain and he returns to camelot and tells arthur and the knights what's happened and how he survived And Gawain, again, feels shame. He believes that he betrayed his deal and that he acted a coward by avoiding a real confrontation with the Green Knight on equal terms. But Arthur, of course, objects, being the very kind uncle that he is, and he insists that Gawain is to be praised for having volunteered for this extremely perilous mission to begin with and for having fulfilled his oath to the Green Knight. And finally, Gawain says that he will continue to wear this green sash around his armor as a mark of his shame and failure. Arthur declares that then he and all of the knights of the round table will also wear similar green sashes in honor of Gawain as a mark of his heroism. And so the story ends with this perfect ambiguity, with the same symbol, this green sash, and green has all of these connotations of the mysterious power of nature and magic and sex, this same green sash representing both Chivalry and cowardice, both shame and honor at once. And it emphasizes the ambiguity of human actions and the complexity of moral judgment. The story probably has some mythological roots. It's reminiscent of many stories of magical talking severed heads, which are connected to many places around Europe. It may also be connected to symbolism of of nature, a sort of forest god, and the Green Knight can be seen to personify the sort of mysterious force behind the seasons. The story takes place over a single year cycle, from one winter solstice to the next winter solstice. But within that framework, it also captures all of this psychological complexity about youth, the need to prove oneself, the foolhardiness of youth, the desire, often dangerous desire, to move out of the shadow of your forebears. And when people mention Sir Gawain in The Green Knight, the conversation often gets very quickly sucked into the sexual story. Attempted and failed seduction of Gawain by the lady. And certainly that is part of the story, but it distracts from the really more powerful theme that I think the tale distills so sharply that judging human action can be irresolvably Ambiguous. The same actions can be honorable and shameful at once. So, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is comparatively fairly short. As I said, it's very elegantly encapsulated in this single story arc. And it's the first Arthurian work in English, but it's not the last one. Really, the final great Arthurian work, which tries to encapsulate and round out the entire mythic cycle, came about a hundred years later, after Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And that is the book that we call Le Mort d'Arthur, or The Death of Arthur, by Thomas Mallory. And this book was first printed by William Caxton, the first printer in England, who published it in 1485. And The book is in late Middle English, so it's a little more accessible and understandable to modern readers than Sir Gawain is. And because it was in late Middle English, it could be easily read aloud and shared by readers of the time, which was very significant because with Caxton's printing press, it could be mass produced and circulated in the hundreds or thousands, although only two copies of that original edition survive. Now, it turns out from manuscripts that have been found, the original title of the book was actually The Whole Book of King Arthur and His Noble Knights of the Round Table, which gives you a more complete sense of what it was trying to encompass. But William Caxton didn't want to print that long title, so he simply called it Les Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, which was actually supposed to be just the title of the last section, the ending of the cycle. And Caxton may have picked that as his title for the book, because the mood of the book is really elegiac. In many points, it's really mournful and nostalgic Still, it was the first effort ever to collect all of the Arthur lore into one comprehensive narrative, to weave together all these different incidents and characters. It includes all sorts of previous stories like Lancelot and his affair with Guinevere, Galahad, and the Holy Grail, but also with some new material added in as well that probably the author made up. Arthur by this time was known to be a very popular subject and not surprisingly it seems that the book sold very well and it pretty quickly became the definitive version of the Arthur cycle and even still today when people discuss incidents in the Arthur mythos in the matter of Britain they look first to the version in Les Morts d'Arthur. The author of the book as I said is named as Thomas Mallory. And at one point in the introduction to the book, he refers to himself as, quote, knight prisoner Thomas Mallory. We don't know for sure who this was. There were a number of Thomas Mallory's around England, and some of them had the rank of knighthood. But scholars mostly tend to think that it was one particular Thomas Mallory, who was born in Warwickshire in Western England around 1415, and who inherited a title and an estate— and then went on to commit a string of crimes. So he allegedly was the perpetrator of two rapes, an attempted murder, a robbery of an abbey, and he was repeatedly imprisoned and escaped from prison a number of times. He got involved naturally enough in the Wars of the Roses, this dynastic civil war that repeatedly convulsed England in the 1400s. And in the course of the war, he switched his allegiance from the House of York to Lancaster. And he was finally caught and imprisoned in a small prison in London between 1468 and 1470. And this is probably, this last stint in prison is probably when he wrote the book. He left prison and then died just a few months after his release in 1471. And one way or another, his manuscript was obtained by William Caxton, who published it in 1485. And the book celebrates courtly love and chivalry much like that literature from the sort of Arthurian golden age in the 11 and 1200s but in some ways it goes even further his narrative is fully romanticized it is a completely idyllic picture of Camelot and Arthur's realm there is no mention of commerce or agriculture or menial labor of any sort no mention of aging it's almost like a heaven on earth captured in a painting. Mallory uses grand castles and jousting tournaments as set pieces for his story, which probably even people at the time knew would be anachronistic. It has nothing to do with the Dark Age of Arthur's time, but rather were a sort of romantic reconstruction of the High Middle Ages of the 11 and 1200s. And the book really, in many ways, largely creates the romantic picture that many of us still have of the Middle Ages, of this world of knights jousting and winning the favor of princesses and so on. Mallory explicitly lays out that Arthur had unified a fractious and disorderly Britain that he had created out of the tumult and violence of that time A brief period of peace and unity. So he's really filling out this picture of a brief golden age. He also changes the villains in the story. The Saxons are gone. (laughs) Arthur is not fighting Saxons, like all of those early histories said. Instead, he fights the Romans, like Geoffrey of Monmouth said. And he also fights foreign invaders who arrive on Britain's shores, who are Saracens, Middle Eastern Muslims. So in this way, he's really evoking the Crusades and projecting this crusading clash of Christianity and Islam back into Arthur's time. In a lot of these ways, you can see this as kind of all of the Middle Ages being kind of rolled together into one mashup. But the main enemy that Arthur contends with is not the Romans or Saracens, but Morgan Le Fay, who is portrayed as increasingly evil. And in Mallory's account, she is an apprentice of Merlin who learns sorcery from Merlin. But she also is bitter and jealous and is driven particularly by a hatred of Guinevere. So there's a sort of further interlocking love triangle here involving Guinevere, Arthur, and Morgan Le Fay. In one episode, she seduces Arthur and then gives birth to an incestuous child, Mordred. So Mordred is now the product of An evil incestuous union. And this Mordred, of course, is the offspring who then overthrows Arthur. So Morgan Le Fay now serves not only as a sort of evil mirror image of the lady in the lake, like in some previous tales, but as Arthur's own evil mirror image, who serves as his adversary in place of the Saxons. And it's possible that Mallory may have jettisoned the Saxons as a villain at this point because Anglo-Saxons and Normans were now so deeply melded in English society. And there was no longer this sort of political imperative to justify Norman rule as against the old Anglo-Saxon elite when increasingly they were all kind of blending together into a new English-speaking society. The main events In Mallory's narrative are Arthur's birth and rise to power, his wars against the Roman Emperor, the adventures of Lancelot, and also of a new knight who's introduced called Sir Gareth, who may have been Mallory's own invention, the affair of Tristan and Isolde, the quest for the Holy Grail, the illicit affair between Lancelot and Guinevere, and the breakup of the round table and the final battle and death of Arthur. And in Mallory's telling, one survivor of the round table, Sir Bedivere, takes Excalibur and returns it to the Lady of the Lake as Arthur is taken to his resting place in Avalon. So not only Arthur himself and his kingdom is sort of brought to a tragic end, but the kind of otherworldly authority that Arthur bore returns back into the invisible world beneath the lake. So Mallory really emphasizes the tragedy of the story and the grail, which is right there at the center, in the middle of the narrative, the grail serves really as a symbol of an unattainable and fleeting happiness. And the grail quest begins in his telling when a hermit confronts two of the knights of the round table and tells them, ye go to seek that ye shall never find. That is the sangreal. So it's almost explicit here that the the grail represents something that is sought but cannot really be attained. Of course, Galahad does attain the grail, but Mallory explains that after Galahad, no other knight in England has ever been able to attain it again, and whether it could ever possibly be found and grasped is left ambiguous. He emphasizes the fleeting nature of Camelot and of Arthur's world, and when the knight's take their oaths to go out and seek the grail arthur in this version is not excited or honored but he's distraught and he weeps and he goes in tears to his nephew gawain and his best friend lancelot and in mallory's telling he says gawain gawain ye have set me in great sorrow for i have great doubt that my true fellowship shall never meet here more again Lancelot then tries to comfort him, saying that they will attain a great honor by going and seeking the grail. And Arthur insists, Ah, Lancelot, the great love that I have had unto you all the days of my life maketh me to say such doleful words. For never Christian king had never so many worthy men at his table as I have had this day at the round table, and that is my great sorrow. So the mournfulness that is always emphasized through Le Morte d'Arthur probably relates to the context of the time in the later 1400s. So at this point, England was an increasingly urban and commercial society, more and more tied in to trade abroad. And power is centered more and more in large armies with infantry forces trained in weapons like pikes and longbows. And so there's a great decline in the value of knighthood and hence of chivalry. Knights are less and less important, both as lords of small manors, which are increasingly unimportant, and as fighters. Instead of exercising the skills of combat on horseback, the infantry are becoming more important and rulers are able to gain victory just by fielding the biggest possible armies. So chivalry is really becoming old-fashioned and outmoded. And you can see a certain nostalgia and sorrow for the decline of this way of life. And maybe in a way you could relate this to Thomas Mallory himself and his sort of shameful (laughs) failure as a fighter, which he seems to turn towards robbing abbeys and switching sides in civil wars. And this scene, I think, of the breakup of the round table can be taken as a metaphor for the end of the chivalric age, which then is also the context many years later for Don Quixote. And in a way, in retrospect, this tone and theme is really appropriate since Les Morts d'Arthur is really the last great Arthurian work. It becomes a classic and it's still seen as sort of authoritative today, but that's partly because it was the last of its kind and it serves as a sort of coda to the golden age of Arthur. And if we look at the modern world and how Arthur has persisted in the modern world, there was a great decline of interest in Arthur and the matter of Britain after about 1500. And this was especially true on the continent. There's clearly waning interest. He's overshadowed by both classical and modern heroes who can be seen as more learned, more worldly, and also more historically documented. So the Renaissance put a great emphasis on reconstructing the past accurately based upon the earliest available documentation. And these stories of Arthur were simply too late to have any historical credibility. No one could find original records from the time about Arthur or his deeds. And so he was more and more shunted aside as a mere figure of legend and not authentic. He did continue to be celebrated in Britain to some degree, but he was overshadowed more and more by actual modern kings who built up power and pageantry around themselves and really didn't need Arthur and the legendary cycle, which came to seem increasingly distant and stuffy and stilted and old-fashioned. And you can see this, I think, symbolized particularly in the beginnings of the Tudor dynasty. So the Tudors came to power in 1485, the same year that *Le Morte d'Arthur was published. And the first Tudor king, Henry VII, wanted, of course, to bolster his own legitimacy, which was, you know, really doubtful. To, and he followed tradition. So the following year in 1486, he named his firstborn son Arthur which is something that many rulers had done before in the past. The crown prince could be named Arthur. But Arthur died, and his place in the succession was taken by his younger brother, Henry, who then came to the throne as Henry VIII. And Henry VIII really built a kind of cult of personality around himself and became almost as iconic and really more notorious, you could say, than the legendary King Arthur And this, I think, demonstrates how as these monarchies rose in power and built up massive armies and navies and built up art and architecture as propaganda to glorify themselves, Arthur sort of faded into the background and became politically irrelevant. And in the 16 and 1700s, Arthur was mainly just a subject of folklore and sort of tall tales passed on orally in which scholars, writers, artists didn't really have much interest. This belief that he was asleep in a cave, it seems, persisted. The notion that he was a once and future king, who at some point would revive and take back rulership to protect Britain, this apparently also persisted, even if only as a sort of children's tale. So the subject was more and more shunned by elites until the 1800s. And after 1800, there is a move towards Romanticism, first in Germany and then in Britain and France as well, where artists and intellectuals expressed a desire to return to past virtues and ideals and also to recover national folk traditions and symbols. So there's a new interest in folklore and even in sort of magic and supernaturalism, which has always been connected to Arthur. And in Britain, specifically, Victorian artists and writers were bored with the homogeneity and mass production of modern industrial society. And they push this romanticism into new themes and make them mainstream, often adding sort of moralistic, Victorian moralistic messages. There's a great fashion for neo-medievalism, medieval styles of art and poetry, And the Arthur cycle very quickly comes to be seen as the epitome of everything medieval, everything that is romantic and exciting and mysterious about the Middle Ages. Victorians project onto Arthur their longing for higher ideals and adventure. And naturally, this mood resonates quite a lot, especially with Thomas Mallory and Le Morte d'Arthur and this sort of nostalgia for the age of chivalry. Probably the great Arthurian masterpiece of the Victorians is Alfred Lord Tennyson's Idols of the King, which is more or less a rehashing of the same cycle of stories that you find in Mallory, but just in good updated modern English verse. Nothing terribly innovative. But other poets and novelists followed and wrote about the Arthur legends, both in prose and poetry, and gained a wide audience. For example, William Morris, who's today known more for his designs and visual art. In his own lifetime, he was more celebrated as a poet. He wrote on Arthurian themes, and his favorite theme, much like other Victorian writers, was the Grail quest and Galahad as this sort of exemplar of the pure chivalrous knight who attains the grail and he wrote a verse story called galahad a christmas mystery and many victorian writers also wrote a great variety of translations and retellings particularly of les mortes d'Arthur*. versions for adults versions for children and the fascination carried over naturally into visual arts as well there was an entire romantic school of pre-raphaelite painters and glass artists and sculptors who wanted to recapture the sort of iconic quality of medieval art, like Edward Burne Jones. And they create illustrations of the Arthur cycle. And those are the sort of images, those kind of Victorian romantic images that we now see all the time in books and on websites illustrating all the Arthur stories, whether it's Galahad or the Lady of the Lake. And Arthur carried over immediately into mass entertainment. He's become good material for Hollywood and Broadway. And for the most part, these entertainment industries have taken up the same sort of Victorian image of Arthur and Camelot it tends to be idealized and romantic. There's of course the Broadway version simply called Camelot, which was produced in 1960 and emphasizes the sort of utopianism of Arthur's world. But there are also exceptions that you can see coming shortly after. Like in 1974, The French director Robert Bresson produced a movie called Lancelot du Lac, or Lancelot of the Lake, which reportedly is much more gritty and cynical, which shows Lancelot as a kind of deceptive, manipulator, social climber. And I've been wanting to see this movie since I read the description of it. I can't find a way to obtain it. If anyone knows, if anyone can give any help there (laughs) in acquiring that movie, I'd really love to see it. But I think from what I've read about it, that it might reflect the sort of 70s mood of disillusionment following after the more idealistic 60s and the failures and shortcomings of the 60s. And this sort of more cynical take on the Arthur cycle, I think you can also see carrying over into this sort of dark slapstick satire of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is probably the version or interpretation of Arthur and the round table that the most people living today have actually seen. So in this way, you could see maybe... Monty Python and the Holy Grail as kind of an exhaustion of the Arthur story, where it had been reproduced so many times ad infinitum and with such kind of lofty, self-important, self-serious overtones that people had kind of become exhausted of it and were ready to make a joke out of it. And Monty Python did a very good job of making it funny in their way. But This might be taken as kind of a sign of a dead end, that there's sort of nothing left to wring out of Arthur that people can still take seriously. But people have not stopped making books and movies on the Arthur cycle. There's the Mists of Avalon from the 1980s, where you see the Arthur cycle more from the point of view of the women and from the point of view of pre-Christian paganism. But since 2000, there's... A bit of a trend, I think, towards seeking for the real or accurate version of Arthur. Almost like Renaissance humanism all over again, people want to believe again, but they need an Arthur that seems more historically plausible. And this turn surely is influenced by the scholarly quest for the historical Arthur, which has been going on now for more than a hundred years. And in a lot of ways, it's very similar and parallel to the quest for a historical Jesus, which I've talked about in an earlier lecture. The biggest example of this is the 2004 movie with Kira Knightley and Clive Owen, which is not a good movie. But what distinguishes it is that it tries to cast Arthur and his knights in a more Roman light, and places them in the context of the Roman withdrawal from Britain in the 5th century. It depicts the conflicts and power struggles between Celto-Romans, Christians and pagans, and Saxons, and it largely omits magic and sorcery. In this way, I think it epitomizes the sort of new style of Arthurian drama, which is less romantic and which tries to conform the story to more modern ideals of equality and personal liberty. And so in that 2004 movie, you see Arthur prancing around saying, oh, we like the idea of free will, which is a completely historically mistaken distortion of Pelagianism, which is a theological school of thought. But it reflects this need to contend with a looming question that people even if they don't articulate it as such want to know which is could there have been a real king arthur is there any actual historical fact behind this and so that's the final question that i'm going to put aside and address in a separate lecture for patrons only on Patreon. So if you want to hear it when it's finished, uh, please go to Patreon, the link is in the description, and become a supporter at any level. And I hope you'll hear from me again soon. Thank you.